Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Det her er den sidste Langsomme Samtale i forårssæsonen, der nu har strukket sig så langt, så det er blevet til sommersæsonen. Og vi slutter med det, som vi her på Dagbladet Information ikke er kede af at kalde et decideret brag. Jeg har nemlig talt med den verdensberømte amerikanske klimaforfatter og klimaaktivist Bill McKibben. Det var ham, der i 1989 udgav en af de første og væsentligste bøger om klimaforandring, den der hed The End of Nature. For et par år siden udgav han Falter, og han har netop udgivet sin egen erindring af The Flag, The Cross and The Station Wagon. Bill McKibben har været en drivende kraft i amerikansk græsrodsbevægelser i 30 år. Han har startet den, der 350.org, som er en klimabevægelse. Han har været inspirator for Sunrise Movement. Han har været engageret på alle mulige forskellige ledere og kanter. Han var med, da Bernie Sanders lancerede sit kandidatur til det amerikanske præsidentvalg i 2016. Og Bill McKibben har haft et ugenligt klimanødsbrev for The New Yorker. Og senest har han lavet en ny bevægelse, som vi også kommer ind på i samtalen. Den hedder Third Act. Og den handler om alle dem, der i første akt af deres liv oplevede de progressive fremskridt i 60'erne og i starten af 70'erne, de store frigørelser, i andet akt af deres liv, det vi kunne kalde deres voksentilværelse. Der oplevede de forbrugerismen, reaganismen, nyliberalismen og alle de nye ting, man kunne købe og få i 80'erne, 90'erne og 0'erne, som vi jo alle sammen tog del i, fordi vi synes, det gjorde vores liv bedre. Forbrugerne er ikke de andre. Det er også os selv. Men så kunne de så se tilbage på deres second act og se, Gud, hvor har vi været med til at smadre jorden her. Så derfor er det, Bill Kibben har lavet en bevægelse, der hedder Third Act, som er aktivisme for ældre, fossiler imod fossile brændstoffer, som han også kalder det. Han har engageret flere tusinder i USA i den her bevægelse. Og pointen er, at de ældre er dem, der har alle pengene. Det er dem, der med deres formue og pensionsopsparing kan flytte virkelig meget. Så ikke alene har de ældre dårlig samvittighed. Det har vi alle sammen. De ældre har også en kapital, som de kan flytte rundt med, så de kan gøre det godt igen. Good evening and welcome to our audience here in Denmark and especially hello to our dear friend and inspirational activist and author and a lot of other things, Bill McKibben, who's with us from Vermont, I believe. Correct. Alt det taler jeg med Bill McKibben om i det, der bliver sæsonens sidste samtale. Bill McKibben er med os fra Vermont, hvor han bor. Well, thank you for taking your time. We usually, when we talk to you, and we're glad we had the opportunity several times, talk about climate change and the history of climate change and activism. And we will get back to that. But I'll start asking you some questions because you have a new book out. That's really a wonderful book. It's a generous book, and it's a book that makes us wiser. And it's a book about half a century of American life that's difficult for us to understand. Your, your book is called The Flag, the Cross, and the Station Wagon, and it's not exactly a memoir. It's like you use your own personal history as a frame of interpretation for understanding what the hell happened to your country. <laughs> uh, you, 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 grew, you were born in California, but you moved with your family to Lexington, Massachusetts. And I think for a Danish audience, we don't exactly know the historical significance of this city. Could you tell us a little bit about that, Bill? Yes, I could. Um, I moved to Lexington when I was 10, uh, and so it was significant in two ways. One, it was the most typical of all American suburbs. 
I mean, there we were, uh, myself and my seven-year-old brother and my father and my mother, uh, as middle class as it was possible to be. We literally lived on a street called Middle Street, um, you know, in the sort of classic American suburban house with two windows above uh, looking out over a tree, over a driveway, uh, over the uh, Plymouth car that my father used for his daily commute to work. So that was the typical part of it. The atypical or the unusual part of it was that Lexington had another history. Lexington was the um, site of the first battle of the American Revolution in 1775. And looked at in that way, really one of the first battles in the world against colonialism and empire. It's where the Minutemen made their first stand against the uh, British redcoats and, and where the American Revolution began. And you had a special, uh, I, I wouldn't exactly call it a job, but, but you were a guide as a very young man there. Uh, so you were kind of interpreting the American Revolution and telling it to, to other people. What did that mean to you? Well, it, it very much was a job. That was my summer job for some years. And uh, we would visitors would arrive in buses and things at the Battle Green in the center of Lexington. And they would get off and we would lead them around and tell them this story. Uh, and, and it was, um, as we told it, a, a story of these brave Minutemen, all the local farmers who uh, came together to resist the British forces as they came out to try and arrest the leaders uh, like John Hancock or Sam Adams of the uh, American Revolution. And so it was a very powerful story for me to be telling, in part because it I, I, I think there was never any danger that I would thereafter think that dissent was unpatriotic. Dissent and patriotism were sort of combined in my mind by that story of what happened on Lexington Green. Uh, these people were patriotic Americans, but they were also standing up to big power. And so I, I think that story probably has something to do with the fact that I've spent my life sort of standing up to big power. I remember when I was in uh, New Hampshire a couple of years ago with my son, and we were covering the Bernie Sanders campaign. So we were following some of his organizers around. And every time we came to a house with an American flag, They would say, well, they're probably Trump supporters. They would just say that <laughs> automatically. And, and that, of course, made us associate this the American flag and a certain kind of patriotism with conservatism. So, so we believe that every time you saw the flag, that, that was a conservative sign. And I was a little surprised by that because something that struck me when I grew up was that the progressives would claim the flag as well. I remember Jimi Hendrix playing Star Spangled Banner. And I remember some of the countercultural heroes would also kind of embrace the flag and the promise of, of America. When, when you were growing up, was patriotism a conservative thing or was it open to everyone? It, it was open to everyone. And indeed, in the American South during the civil rights movement, uh, black people were often arrested for having the American flag, waving the American flag, because it was understood that it was a gesture about uh, freedom and civil rights and that, you know, Um, that, that that it was the Confederate flag that marked crazy right-wing racist conservatives. But over time, uh, progressives really have surrendered the 
the flag to conservatives. Um, and I think that that's understandable. We've learned a lot more about American history and its dark corners over time. But I think it's also a mistake because there are things about American history that radical, I mean, really, this was the first place in the world where people said, you know what, we don't actually need kings to run our lives. Uh, we can run our lives ourselves. And that was a very radical notion. It was echoed some few years later by the French Revolution. Uh, but the Americans got there first. And I, 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 so I think that there's a lot to be said for um, holding on to some of that symbolism. Uh, yeah, you write in the book that you've always been amazed and chagrined that many progressives willingly surrendered the flag to the right. Right now, we there, there's this big uh, battle in America, which is very inspirational, actually, for us here, for our, for our young kids fighting against racism and and for for young women standing up to misogyny. That that is challenging the the conventional history of of America and the symbols of America. And you're careful, very careful in your book to say that this definitely is an important movement. But you you say you you're also careful not to just uh, associate the American history with shame and and guilt. How do you see this balance between patriotism and appealing to the progressive nature of American history and the common denominators? And then on the other hand, also making the nation aware of the atrocities of its past. Well, I'm a writer and and so, you know, my job is to tell the truth about things. And so I think that that's extremely important. And some of what I'm doing in this book is trying to break new ground there and tell some of these stories again, stories about famous Americans like Paul Revere that we need to understand in new ways, you know. Um, um, so I don't see any contradiction, uh, I, although it must be said that people are not as good anymore at holding two slightly opposing ideas in their minds at the same time. Uh, we've become very fixed and binary in our views of the world. So that may be asking too much. I don't know. Another thing, of course, which is in the title of the book is the cross. And uh, we've spoken to several here on this series, Americans like Cornel West and Marshall Gans, who told us about what the church meant as, just as a place for meeting as an organizational house in the in the 60s and the 70s, but also as this about the spiritual inspiration coming from from the gospel, and and they were they were regretting that that the church didn't play that role on the left anymore today, and said that some of the grassroots movement actually needed what the church provided in the 60s and, and 70s. What what did the church mean to you growing up as a young progressive? Well. Look, the church just meant to me uh, in those days, it was just an absolutely normal part of life. So when I, I you know, when I, in the 70s, which is the period I'm writing about, uh, more than half of Americans belonged to one of the liberal Protestant denominations that, that Scandinavians would recognize. You know, we were Lutherans, Methodists, uh, Congregationalists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, uh, these sort of liberal mainline Uh, 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 denominations. And another 30% of Americans were Roman Catholic. So th that was what religion was. But that's been replaced in the in the um, subsequent years, either by a move for, to people away from religion entirely, 
or a conversion of people into evangelical Christianity, which is a very different thing. And to sum it up, I think, the the churches of the kind that Cornell West or Marshall Gans was are describing are the ones that I grew up in, were churches that, whatever their flaws, were part of the project of building a better society. Uh, you know, that's how they understood themselves. Uh, they understood the gospel to be about uh, feeding the hungry and, and taking care of the poor and building a better world. Evangelical Christianity is very much about a one-on-one, hyper-individualized relationship with God. It's a kind of transactional religion uh, to get you personal salvation in the hereafter. Uh, It's not about uh, changing the world we're in, unless it's changing it backwards into a more retrograde kind of place, as we're seeing with activism around things like abortion or uh, race. So uh, I think it's been a tremendous loss in a lot of ways, again, understandable, um, but, um, but the Gospels are very radical, <laughs> very radical documents. I mean, we're talking about, in some ways, the most radical book anyone ever wrote, uh, telling people to turn the other cheek if they're uh, attacked, telling people to take what they have and give it to the poor. Um, you know, on and on and on. And so again, it pains me to see that become the possession of the right wing. And it appears to us from the distance uh, that it seems very, very difficult to bridge the cultural divides in, in America today to reach kind of common horizons with people that you politically disagree with. And that is a loss for the right as well as for the left, because no one can win without playing with the other team at some at some point eventually. How do you see the connection between the loss of patriotism and the church on the left and this this part of, of, of the religious tradition and then the the destructive device that you're in today in America? Well, Americans really have lost the ability to connect with each other in lots of ways. And you can tell where everybody's self-isolating. Uh, just geographically, people are moving to red states to be near people like them or blue states uh, or finding their own tribe, as it were. Um, and that is uh, both understandable um, and painful. Much of this division is the you know, planned result of uh, forces that really wanted to polarize American society, um, especially Uh, those kind of right-wing forces that spent a lot of money building out this sort of uh, polarized and kind of crazy worldview, people like the Koch brothers. But it's taken on a life of its own at this point. It's sort of escaped from their grasp. And now we have figures like Donald Trump that are just completely polarizing, that some people love and some people hate, and very few people are in the middle on. Something that is very, very interesting and for us very educational about reading your book is that we we know the stories that we usually tell on the left that it's because of uh, the concentration of wealth, the polarization in America, neoliberalism and the hyper-individualism that came in the Ronald Reagan era. But you also point to two key events in your own childhood that you refer to as thing one and thing two. And I find them interesting because they're both democratic events 
and their understandable uh, uh, events. Could, could you walk us through these two events where you could say one is kind of a progressive culture getting established and the other one is local democracy pulling the other way? Yes, these these two events happened within a f- few weeks of each other uh, when I was 10 or 11 in this town of Lexington that I've described. And the first one, which I knew about at the time because it was very dramatic, uh, seemed to fit with the idea of a world that was getting more progressive, a world that was trying to uh, become a better, more inclusive place. It was during the arguments over the war in Vietnam. And since Lexington Green was such an historic place, uh, a number of anti-war demonstrators calling them, they were all Vietnam veterans who'd come back from the war. They called themselves the Vietnam veterans against the war. And they were led by a young lieutenant named John Kerry, who <laughs> later ran for president and became, uh, you know, at the moment he became secretary of state. But in those days, he was a young protester. And they wanted to camp on Lexington Green as part of their protest. And the town fathers denied them permission. And so hundreds of townspeople went down to be arrested alongside them, including my father, for whom this was very out of character. But he was appalled that they were not being allowed to protest. And so he he was arrested too. Um, obviously, that made a big impression on me as a young, uh, as a young boy. And... <laughs> I thought that that was, you know, a kind of defining moment. Um, When I was researching that for this book and going through all the back issues of the local newspaper from this year, it became clear that there was something else going on in town at the same time, however. And that was a decision about whether or not to have affordable housing in Lexington. Lexington was becoming expensive, as suburbs were. And so there was a proposal to have a small 100-unit affordable housing complex, uh, some apartments, and presumably uh, many of them would have been uh, taken by uh, black people because there were very few in Lexington, Um, but that's that's whom this proposal was aimed at helping. Um, And officially, everybody was in favor of it, all the ministers the town's uh, governing board, uh, the newspaper, so on and so forth. But when people actually went into the voting booth to vote on whether or not to allow this small project to be built, people voted it down two to one, you know, large margin. And so to me, that symbolized the other possibility for America, uh, that we'd become a more selfish and privatized place. And over the decade of the 1970s, I think we had a kind of decision to be made between those two visions of the future. And I think by the end of the decade, with, as you say, the election of Ronald Reagan, we made that decision. And ever since we've lived in the shadow of that decision. And the decision was, you know, to pretty much abandoned the idea of people working together to build a better place. Ronald Reagan told us that uh, government, which is just the name for people working together, was the problem, not the solution, that markets solved problems, uh, that we should just all concentrate on getting rich. And basically, that's the uh, philosophy that's dominated 
American political life ever since, and of course, spread around much of the rest of the world as well. What I think is very interesting is that at the time with this thing too, the, the local vote on the affordable housing, is that the elites, uh, the, the public officials and the leaders were what we would today call more progressive than, than the voters. So that, and, and, and Lexington at the time was not a conservative place. It was a fairly liberal place. So it must have been quite surprising to learn that the people like your parents who experienced this progress, who experienced three decades of enormous growth and new opportunity, that they turned against affordable housing. Yes, I think it probably was a shock for many people there to see how many of their neighbors uh, were not interested in that vision of a more inclusive society. Um, but, you know, that's, that's what the suburbs were quickly becoming, uh, a place apart uh, and a place for the wealthy. And that was a big part of the division that has grown and grown and grown in America. If you had enough money to buy into the suburbs and early on, then you became very wealthy indeed over the next few decades. Uh, the house that my parents bought in 1970, room for $30,000, so about $200,000 in today's money, sold last year for a million dollars, which means that it appreciated $800,000 just because of, I mean, it was the same house, you know. Um, but if you were on that escalator at the beginning, then you got very wealthy. Uh, there were lots of people who couldn't be on that escalator at the beginning because they didn't have the money or because they were barred by their race from being there or something. And that's why the wealth gap in America between black and white has just kept growing. When I read it in your book, it kind of reminded me of, of the story of the welfare states in Scandinavia, that you made social progress, you made new opportunity, and you made social security. And when and then when the issue of immigration came up, then people did not want to share their new wealth. And you know, the the consensus here among in the Scandinavian welfare states, which is very liberal when it comes to ourselves, our own freedoms is extremely strict when it comes to immigration. I mean, your immigration laws in America, even Donald Trump would be politically to the left of us. I mean, something like chain migration is not accepted here. So it seems to me that this is also a story about human nature, or it could be if you don't cultivate it right politically. Yes, I'm sure that that's true. And, you know, I, I know that there are mixed uh, approaches to immigration in Scandinavia, that Sweden has been more open. And I know that other parts of Europe, like Merkel's Germany, have been more open to immigration in recent years. But it is very painful to watch the refusal of people to deal with migration, uh, because it's a perfect example of something I write about in the book. Um, one big reason, of course, that people are coming, uh, moving, trying to move is because of climate change. And climate change is caused by those of us in the global north. We owe an enormous carbon debt to the rest of the world. And one way to repay that is to be sensible about immigration. You also write about, I think when we, suburbs in America, for us, they're like uh, um, what you call a modest paradise. They're a utopia for every man. 
when we see it in popular culture, these these idyllic lives in 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 the suburbs. Uh, but you also see the suburbs as a creation of as an as a place where wealth is is concentrated and as a place where a new way of life is distributed. You have bigger houses, more distance between the houses, and bigger cars. Could could you tell us a little bit of, about this way of life and the wealth that was produced, and of course the emissions that came out of that? Well, yes. I mean, the American project really after the end of World War II was building bigger houses farther apart from each other. That's what we spent most of our wealth on. And the thing that enabled it was the car. The station wagon is what I describe in this book because that was the dominant mode of transportation in the suburbs before we had SUVs and things. Um, and uh, really, the, the suburb was just a, uh, you know, the automobile world made concrete. Uh, it, it was a world designed for cars right down to the sort of streets being designed for their turning radius and so on and so forth. Um, of course, that produced enormous environmental troubles. Once you'd built bigger houses farther apart from each other, you had to heat and cool them. You had to travel between them and you had to fill them with stuff. And so that burst of suburbanization produced more carbon than any other event in human history, even more than China's industrialization over the last 20 years. Uh, the 4% of the world that lives in America has produced about a quarter of all the greenhouse gas emissions. And that it was that suburban explosion uh, and its reliance on automobiles that drove that more than anything else. But these two events that you point out in, 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 in the beginning, the, the Vietnam protest that that made your father, who was a business journalist, who made him an anti-war war protester. There are two different um, tendencies in, in the culture of, of your lifetime. So the progressive part also, uh, th there was also a progressive part of, of American history at the same time in the 70s, I imagine. Oh, yes. Y you know, the, the legacy of the 60s was extraordinary in that 60s into the 70s. I mean, this was a moment of... Um, remarkable, epic social, cultural, political transformation. In the course of a few years, we had the apex of the civil rights movement and the expansion of uh, uh, the voting franchise to everybody. Uh, we had the decision to take women seriously as a part of human society. Uh, we had the fight against the war, which really was uh, one of the first times that human beings really rallied around the idea that maybe there was a better way than a war to solve problems. And of course, we had in 1970 in the U.S. the first Earth Day, which was the world's first explosion of concern about environmental matters, and within a year or two had produced the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act that became the template that pretty much every other government around the world used to try and deal with uh, their own environmental problems. So it was a remarkable moment, and that made the backlash against it all the more painful as it came. I think it was very interesting for me to read your your recollection of what Jimmy Carter was saying at the time, because I was born in 74, so I just knew vaguely about Jimmy Carter as the guy who was too weak and lost to Ronald Reagan, who was too strong, and we, he wasn't very popular in, in Denmark. But I thought it was interesting to hear what Jimmy Carter was actually saying at the time, because 
if you hear what European leaders are saying, not necessarily what they're doing right now, they're saying actually some of the same things that he's saying confronted with Russia, you now have a German chancellor saying, well, it's not just a transition to one kind of energy to another. We must actually reduce our consumption. We must actually, and it's also said by the by the European Commission at the time. So it seems to me that 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 Jimmy Carter actually was was more that, that he was more right than I thought, that, and that he was actually quite foresighted at the time. Very much so. Um, Carter, in retrospect, uh, becomes a great American president because he was willing to tell Americans the truth. He said, "Ours is a very wasteful society, uh, and and it's actually not a very happy society either." Uh, this all this consumption is not producing uh, uh, the things that we want, and we want we should want something different. Jimmy Carter, in 1980, running for president, pledged that his goal, if he was reelected, would be to put the U.S. on a path to produce 20% of its energy from solar power by the year 2000. That was achievable if he'd spent if we'd spent the money, and if we had done it it would have put the entire world in a completely different place confronting climate change as it emerged as a crisis. But of course, we never got to find out if we could do it or not. Uh, the solar panels that Jimmy Carter had put on the top of the White House were summarily taken down by Ronald Reagan as soon as he moved in. So this event, uh, this thing too, uh, of, of the event of your, of your past, this hyper that led to the hyper-individualization under Ronald Reagan and this new, it actually crushed what could have been a very early green transformation uh, because Reagan won uh, in 1980. Absolutely. And and one of Reagan's big pledges was that we should just drill for more oil and, and stop any environmental regulation of the fossil fuel industry. And, you know, his slogan was, it's morning in America again. Um, and so people bought the idea that we didn't need to change and decided that Carter was wrong for asking us to change. As it turns out, had we changed when Carter asked, we might well have averted much of the largest crisis that our species has ever wandered into. Which is a very, very sad, which is very sad to look back on and tell our children and grandchildren. A part of the last part of your book, you refer to something that you've been working very intensely on with lately, uh, the third act. Um, yeah. And I think that is very, very interesting for our readers as, as well. The, the third act as a, as a part of life where you usually think, well, you're no longer a, a political factor, but, but you say, hey, you actually have some capital. You have a lot going for yourself. You're not going to be the leaders. You're going to assist the young people. Could, <laughs> could you, could, I, I love that, that you have all the capital, but you're going to be the helpers. You're not going to be, mm. you're not going to be the leaders. Could, could you tell us about this as a third act phenomenon? Yes, I could. Um, you know, I've spent much of the last few decades organizing uh, as a volunteer, but it's been most of my work. And I started 350.org with seven young people in college. Uh, I, I was in my 40s. And that became the first example of a global grassroots climate movement. We've organized 20,000 demonstrations in every country on earth except North Korea. Uh, we you know, spearheaded the fight against the Keystone Pipeline that became the big environmental battle in America. 
And then we launched this fossil fuel divestment campaign that's now at $40 trillion in endowments and portfolios that have divested. So I've gotten to work a lot with young people, the young people who came out of that fossil fuel divestment campaigns on college campuses when they graduated became the sunrise movement that brought us the Green New Deal. And then, of course, I've gotten to know and work with all the remarkable, really young people, junior high and high school students like Greta Thunberg all over the world. Uh, and, you know, Greta is one of my favorite people ever to work with, and she's great. And she'd be the first to tell you that there are 10,000 Greta Thunbergs and they have 10 million followers, all of which is wonderful. We need youthful energy, ambition, engagement, intellectual power. The only thing that worries me is that I hear too many people saying, oh, these are problems for young people to solve. It's up to them. And that's that's not only not fair, it also won't work because for all that energy, young people lack the structural power to get change done. If you look at the United States, those of us over the age of 60, there are 70 million of us. That's bigger than the population of France. And those 70 million people vote in extremely large numbers, much higher percentages than any other part of the population. So they have even more political power than their numbers would indicate. We also have most of the money. Fair or not, 70% of the financial assets in the country belong to the baby boomers or the silent generation above them, compared with about 5% for millennials. So if you wanted to move Washington or Wall Street or something, you really would want to have some older people engaged. Now, people have tended not to try and organize older people because there's a belief that people become more conservative as they age. And there's some statistical evidence to back it up. Um, But we can't let that happen in this case or we'll lose these fights. And in this case, for reasons we've already discussed, I I don't think that we need to... uh, decide that people will become more conservative. If you're in your 60s or 70s or 80s now, the first act of your life, you were around for these remarkable social and political and cultural transformations. Uh, You know, you either participated in or bore witness to real revolutions that changed consciousness in profound ways. Now, look, in our second act, it must be said, taken as a whole, these generations were more interested in consumerism than they were in citizenship. But now, in our third act, we're, we have lots of resources. We have skills acquired over a lifetime. We have some time, which we may not have had before. And we have mostly kids or grandkids. And hence, this idea around legacy is not abstract. It's very real. So it's a powerful possibility to imagine getting older people to go to work on these problems. And in the first few months since we formed thirdact.org, tens of thousands of people have signed up and begun campaigning, trying to convince the banks to stop funding the fossil fuel industry, trying to stand up to voter suppression laws and register new voters and, and so on and so forth. It's been a lot of fun, I must say. I loved it the first time I, I read about it because I thought it was brilliant. 
because I meet so many people who are more than 60 or more than, than, than 70 who actually have been all their life contributing to society and, and who cannot bear that when you reach the final lap of, of your life, you realize that in this second, what you call the second act, the main part of your grown-up life, you've been contributing not to society, but to the destruction of the habitat for, for the next generations. And they feel kind of hopeless, helpless and hopeless about it. And I love the fact that you organize and give them a chance to show their children and their grandchildren that it's not that they don't care. They were part of movements that were stronger than themselves and tendencies, and we're all shaped by tendencies that we don't shape ourselves. Do people engage with that inspiration of having the chance to, to set things straight in the end? Yes, and there's there's some very cool things about it. Um, one is that we're very intentionally do a lot of work with young people in this sort of Cross-generational work is a lot of fun for both sides. Uh, young people, I think, are finding it a great relief to see older people taking some responsibility. And the second thing is that, you know, we're trying to do it in the right spirit. And there's a lot of wonderful material to work with. The people who were iconic figures in the first act of our lifetimes, many of them are still around and very active. Uh, I tell young people, you know, fight me if you want, but our generation produced the greatest music that there ever was. So it's really fun to have Carol King, Bette Midler, Patti Smith, Neil Young, people like that working with us. <laughs> that's, that's that's funny that you use the music of, of your of your generation to to if if we were to do something similar here, because I think one thing is that is the financial leverage that you talk about. We cannot have the activism just directed against governments, you know, for, for obvious, for obvious reasons, because our financial institutions, they keep investing in, in, in fossil fuels and, and energies that will destroy the, the planet. So, yeah. so, we, so we need the leverage and we need to diversify the activism. And you've been better at that in America than we have here in, in Europe. And I think you've contributed to moving a lot of, of capital. What would be your advice if, if, if someone wanted to do a third act uh, here in Denmark? What would, how should we organize? How should we appeal to people? Well, I, I, don't, I think you're right. I don't think you'll have any trouble doing it. I think that people are, are eager for this kind of work. And it's not that there aren't older people engaged in all kinds of good things, but it's very useful to have them engaged as older people uh, and helping other older people redefine kind of their uh, their sense of who they are. And so that's how I begin, um, you know, uh, uh, getting people to, to really say, yes, we can make a difference. Yes, we're closer to the exit than we are to the entrance, you know, but uh, uh, we've got plenty of time and plenty of ability to make real difference here. And we're committed to doing it. And then I think it's really important to do it in the right spirit. And part of that means not having to run the whole thing and be the, you know, work with others. And the other is to have, you know, a little fun with it. I don't know how well this will translate, but we've got a big banner that we've been using at these bank protests that just says fossils against fossil fuels. And <laughs> that's kind of our slogan. 
<laughs> we, we, we do that here. Well, I have just two, two questions for you and, and, and five minutes left, and I'll jump a little bit here. Because um, when we talked a couple of years ago, we were quite optimistic about Biden's climate agenda. And here in Denmark, for the first half year of his presidency, people had high hopes for, for, for Biden's presidency. And I think he confronted a lot of issues in the right way, looking at improving conditions for the working class and combating climate change at the same time, seeing it as a kind of a green transition that would help industries doing something radically, policies that are radical from the center. I think there was a lot to be said for his initial project. Now, I think we have the feeling that not, not least because of Joe Manchin, who's so supported by the fossil fuel industries, that Biden is kind of stalling now and, and that he won't get as much done in his presidency as we hope for. And now he'll lose the midterms and he'll do some things by presidential um, executive orders in the second part of his, his first period as president. And that can be undone by the next Republican president. So we have this feeling that what could be a real seismic change in American climate policies is now turning into something that we've seen before. How do you see it? Yes, I think that's probably a correct description. Biden had such a slim majority in Congress and without Joe Manchin, no majority at all. So he really couldn't pass legislation and he's not figured out a way to get around that. He's So yes, the administration's been kind of dead in the water. I will say that the truly right-wing, reactionary, bizarre Supreme Court rulings of the last few days, getting rid of abortion, letting everybody have carry guns wherever they want or things, is producing, at least for the moment, a powerful backlash. And I think it's possible that it may change the picture some as we go to the midterm elections, because people are beginning to realize just how fundamentally endangered their most cherished hopes really are. So we shall see. And that will be kind of the thing one from your, that will be like the, the introduction of the, the anti-war protest that you saw in Lexington. My last question is very difficult, but I can think of no one better asking it than, than you. It, we've just been looking at the 50 years that's passed since Limits to Growth came out, you know, of course, 50 years ago. And there was the first big, environmental conference that was called at the time in Stockholm. And we were doing a special edition of this newspaper uh, just two weeks ago. And my daughter, she was typing all the old stuff into the computers, helping the newspaper. And she was saying, well, she was so depressed reading it because she was saying, well, it's it was exactly the same 50 years ago. You said, well, at least now we have the mobilization. At least now people, it may not look too good, but now we are becoming aware, and this will be the shock that's going to, going to mobilize us. And she said, well, you knew most of it at the time. So she was asking me what actually changed, apart from the fact that we're now in a place where the climate is collapsing around us and it has consequences that we don't like to, to think about. So she was asking me, apart from that, what changed in a positive direction? How are we stronger than we were 50 years ago? And I did come up with an answer because I'm a parent and I feel responsible for her hopes and aspirations, but it wasn't very convincing. What would you have responded to her? Well, I would say that actually people got a lot done in that period. So you'll recall that we didn't know about climate change, say, in 1972, but we knew about air pollution and water pollution. 
10 million Americans went into the streets in Earth Day in 1970. That was about no, 20 million Americans. That was about 10% of the then population of the U.S. And they got the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act passed. And what do you know? The air and the water got a lot cleaner fast because that's what happens when you, you know, regulate polluters. So it was a great victory in many ways. And that should be an inspiration for us now that we can do the same kind of thing again. If we could get 20 million Americans in the streets tomorrow, we'd probably be able to pass some important laws around climate change. That's why we mobilize. That's why we try to organize as best we can. And it may be harder in this sort of world that we've allowed to develop over these last decades, but that's the work that we have to do. And that's why we do things like Third Act. And the good thing is that doing it, it makes it easier living with it. You know, doing it, being part of the movement, it actually makes it easier because you're part of a movement, you're in it with people. And Bill McKibben, you've been such an inspiration for so many years for us here. Thank you so much for all your work and for your spirit and for your keeping up. We've been very grateful for your work. Thank you for taking your time and talking well, to us. I hope you keep you. up. Thank you very much. And just know that, you know, for those of us over here, uh, you guys are able to see all the flaws and things in, in what's happening in Scandinavia. But just understand that for many of us around the world, it's really important that people have done as much as they've done to build good, working, decent societies there and that are inspirations to all of us. So thank you. Thank you. I wish you a good summer, Bill. You too. Take care then. Det var min samtale med Dagbladet Informations vejleder og held, Bill McKibben. Det var den sidste samtale i den her sæson. Hvis man kommer til at savne de langsomme samtaler hen over sommer, så kan man jo scrolle tilbage og høre dem igen. Eller man kan købe bogen Langsomme Samtaler, som vi har udgivet her for et par uger siden. Man kan gå ind på butik.information.dk Og der kan man, hvis man er abonnent, få intet mindre end jeg holder godt fast. 15% rabat på bogen, det vil sige en bog, der normalt koster 300 kroner, kan man få for 255 kroner. Jeg har samlet de 40 første samtaler i bogen, og jeg har skrevet et langt forord, hvor jeg kan redde for, hvorfor jeg tror på, at de her langsomme samtaler er med til at ændre verden. For det tror jeg på, og det er også derfor, vi fortsætter efter sommerferien. Vi har allerede aftaler med Jones Bombio, Ulrike Giro. Kwame Anthony Appiah og Lawrence Tobiana, så det bliver et kæmpestort efterår, vi går imod med langsomme samtaler. Men først skal vi have en sommerferie. Tak til jer, fordi I lyttede med hele vejen igennem og kom med gode forslag til folk, jeg kunne interviewe. Bliv endelig ved med det. Skriv til mig på runesnablag.information.dk, hvis I har idéer til nogen, som I gerne vil høre her i langsomme samtaler. Jeg kan ikke love, at jeg tager dem, for jeg skal jo selv kunne snakke med dem og have læst dem, men jeg vil altid gerne have gode idéer. Et kæmpe stort tak til Anne Pilgaard Petersen, som er blevet ved med at producere og hjælpe med at sætte de her fragmenter sammen til en eller anden form for helhed, som vi kalder for de langsomme samtaler. Tak for støtten hele vejen igennem. God sommer til jer alle sammen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg, og jeg lover, at vi vender tilbage til efteråret.